Well, good morning, everyone. It is so cool to be with you, and it's hard to follow what just happened on stage and all those uh, thank yous for what you guys are doing. It, it really is amazing that I get to be a part of such a generous church, such a loving church that wants to really impact the people around them. Um, it's amazing, and I'm very, very grateful. So thank you from me as well, and I'm just grateful that I get to be a part of this group of people who are loving Chattanooga and... Uh, doing what we do. It's, 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 it's awesome. So thanks. Um, I'm also grateful that uh, we get to look at another big idea, uh, one more big idea in the series that we've been doing called The Messiah is Coming. Um, and the reason we called it that, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you've heard this, but if, you're, if this is your first time joining the series, the reason we're calling the series The Messiah is Coming is because there's a really cool um, reality. If you look at all the, the, the writings of the ancient Israel nation, of the ancient Hebrew nation, um, and, and all their writings have kind of become a part of, most of their writings have become a part of our Old Testament as Christians, but if you look at those writings, the reason it's become a part of our Old Testament is because there is this theme through all their poems, through all their, their, their prophecies, through all their laws, through all the history, through all their stories, there is this, this theme that, that looks ahead towards this Messiah that's coming, and this Messiah will one day come, in all the writings, the Messiah will one day come and make things right. And as you go look at it, the stuff was written so long ago, and the reason that's important to us, the reason we bring it up, and the reason we're doing a series like this is because Christians believe that that Messiah, that they've been talking about, that they had been talking about for hundreds and, and sometimes thousands of years, was born on Christmas Day. That that Messiah that they prophesied about, that they pointed to, that they thought about, the one that would come and make all the changes in the world, that would come that would change things and make things right, was born on Christmas Day in a manger, and that his name was Jesus. And so what we thought of doing is looking back at these writings and seeing what they said as we head towards Christmas this year, as Christmas is coming in six days, I believe. That's right, right? Six days? Yes, as Christmas is coming in six days, we thought we'd take the weeks in December and, and say, okay, what did these people say as they were looking forward to the Messiah that's coming? And what we found so far is just incredible. I've thoroughly enjoyed rereading this stuff and looking at this and preparing these messages because as you look at the stuff it was written hundreds of years before, and we know it was written hundreds of years before because it was so established that it was actually translated into a Greek version of those writings in the third century BC. So we have both Hebrew uh, language writings and documents and Greek documents of the same stuff at least 300 years before Jesus was born. But when you look at the stuff that was written, it's uncanny how when you study them and read them and you look at the life of Jesus and study his life, how they coincide, how what was said hundreds of years before Jesus literally happened in Jesus' life and around Jesus, things that if he was just human, he could not control, and yet they happened. It's so amazing, and the thing that we're going to look at today, we're going to look at one more uh, passage that was written 700 years before Jesus was born, and it's crazy how brilliantly it describes what Jesus did. In fact, it describes the thing that he was coming to make right. And as I read this, it's such a beautiful portion. Like, I, I don't know if I can do it justice. It's one of my favorite portions of scriptures in the Old Testament. It is amazing. And, and the thing that makes it even cooler is that Jesus quoted a portion of it and said, this is about me. He like literally said that. And it's even cooler when he quoted this portion. Of scripture, Because when he quoted this the little part of this prophecy that was made 700 years before was right before he was crucified. 
Judas had already agreed to betray Jesus. Jesus had already had the last supper with his disciples where he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, this is a picture of my body, it's about to be broken for you. He poured wine and he said, this is a picture of my blood which is poured out for you. And then he finished that last supper and he was headed out to go pray in the garden of Gethsemane, the place where he would get arrested and taken to the cross where he would die suffering on the cross. And right before he went to pray in the garden and after the Last Supper, he quoted this little portion of this prophecy. And then he said, this is about me. I wanna show you how he said it. In Luke chapter 22, verse 37, he said this. It is written. So when he says it is written, he's referring to something that is known and written. That the whole Israel, the whole Hebrew nation knew about this thing. And he says it is written. And this is where he quotes Isaiah. He says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he quotes one line. And when he quotes that line, it's actually way down in this portion of scripture. It's like verse 12 when you read this. And when he claims that, when he quotes that, he says this, I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. He must be numbered with the transgressors. What is he saying? And he said, yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. In other words, this is about to happen, guys. He's just broken the bread and said, this is about to happen, broken body. He's just poured the wine. He said, my blood's about to get spilled from the new covenant. And he quotes this saying, and he was numbered with the transgressors. What is he saying that he was numbered, that I would be numbered with the transgressors? Well, what I wanna do is I wanna go back and look because it was Isaiah who wrote this 700 years before Jesus was born. And he wrote it in the context of this beautiful passage that I wanna look at that explains this whole transgressor thing. Why was he numbered with the transgressor? And then why, what was it that he said needs to be fulfilled in me? So we're gonna go back and look at Isaiah chapter 53 and read what he said. But before we get there, I wanna give you a little bit of context that Isaiah wrote into. I wanna give you a bit of context because understanding this context helps us understand why Isaiah wrote this, what, what, why it was necessary, and why Jesus claimed it for him. So I wanna try and do my best to explain the context, a massive, massive deal about the Israel nation, about the Hebrew nation, um, because they weren't only sort of, one of the things that defined them was this whole idea that a Messiah was coming and they always pointed to him. But there was another big idea that defined them so much. And I, that's the context that I wanna try and explain now. The thing that defined them outside of the Messiah coming was they had this law that was known as the ceremonial law. And they had this thing that was attached to it called the sacrificial system. Like the sacrificial system and the ceremonial law was something that defined them deeply as a nation. And the ceremonial law basically had to do with being ceremonially clean or unclean. And so there was a whole bunch of writing, I mean, a whole bunch of laws, a whole bunch of things around this idea that, that you need to do stuff that make you clean and not do stuff that make you ceremonially unclean because if you were unclean, you were not allowed to approach God. You were not allowed to actually enter the temple. You were not allowed to go. So there was a whole bunch of stuff that said, hey, we need to talk about being clean and unclean. And, and, and even if you kind of don't know the history of Israel, even if you don't know that stuff, if you know a Jewish person in the modern days or you know, you know the idea the, the idea of Jewish people and, and you shop anywhere, you probably are aware of these unclean and clean laws because we know that Jewish people don't eat pork, right? They don't eat pork and the reason they don't eat pork is because it's not kosher. And another way of saying that it's not kosher is that it's unclean, that it's not clean. And if you eat 
foods that aren't kosher, if you eat unclean foods, then you become unclean. But these ceremonial laws went way beyond just food. Food is the known one to us. I mean, they touched so many things that had far-reaching effects and hit on things like what you wear, where you go, whether your house was clean or not. My bad. <laughs> Whether there was things like mildew, it talked about what's happening in your body, it talked about sort of if your skin was okay, it talked about what you wore, it talked about what you touched, it talked about where you went, who you interacted with, that if you did certain things, you were unclean. And if you were unclean, then that sort of expressed this, this reality that there was the separation between you and God because there are a whole bunch of reasons why these ceremonial laws of cleanness and uncleanness were put in place. But one of the primary reasons I believe that it was put in place is because it was a way to express outwardly, express practically an inward and spiritual reality. These laws of cleanness and uncleanness, the ceremonial cleanliness laws, expressed an outwardly a, a, a reality of an inward and spiritual um, truth. You see, the ceremonial laws, what they were saying is this, very practically, very detailed, they were expressing that God is God, that He is perfect, that He is holy, that God, if you will, is 100% clean. And, and here's the reality. We want God to be perfect, don't we? Because if he's not perfect, then you can't trust him. Because if he's not perfectly holy, that everything he thinks and everything he does is holy and perfect, then we would go, well, what about that decision? That was a bad decision. If he's not perfect, then we will question his, his decisions. We will question who he is. So we want God to be holy. But the problem is, if God really is holy, we know ourselves, right? We know that we're not holy. We're not perfect. We say it all the time. I'm only human. I'm not perfect. And so if God is perfect, and this is what the ceremonial laws communicated day in and day out, that God is perfect. He's clean 100%. He's holy, and we're not. We're unclean. We're not holy. We're not perfect. And as a result, if God is perfect and we want him to be and we know ourselves and we're not perfect, then what that does is it creates a natural separation between us and God. And so th these were these ceremonial laws that kept saying day in and day out that compared to God, we're impure, we're unholy. And so when people were unclean or when people had sinned, they were not allowed. Like the law said, if you're unclean for whatever reason, whether you just touched something or ate something or you know, bumped into something, whatever, if you're unclean, you are not allowed to approach a holy God, that you're separated from him. And it was so practical that they weren't even allowed in the temple. They weren't even allowed to come in. And so what they were saying is that there is this, this reality that God is clean, perfect, holy, and we as humans are unclean, imperfect, and unholy, and we're not allowed to approach God as a result of it. The only way that they could approach God is if they would follow the appropriate rules and if they would make the appropriate sacrifices to atone for their sin, to cleanse the ceremonial uncleanness of them. And once that you know, sacrifice had been made, once they'd followed the rules, then now they were clean again, ceremonially clean, and they could enter the temple again. So that was kind of what they lived. Tim Keller describes this whole system really well. He, he says this, the Old Testament 
devotes a good amount of time and space to describing the various sacrifices that were to be offered in the tabernacle or later in the temple. And these sacrifices were to atone for the sin so that worshipers could approach a holy God. And as part of that sacrificial system, there were also a complex set of rules for ceremonial purity and cleanness. You could only approach God in worship if you ate certain foods and not others, if you wore certain forms of dress, if you refrained from touching a variety of objects and so on, all these ceremonial laws. And here's what he says, he describes why. This vividly conveyed over and over that human beings are spiritually unclean and can't go into the God's presence without purification. So part of the reason why these ceremonial laws were there was to vividly describe God is perfectly holy and we're not. And we're unclean. And it was this vivid reality that, that humans have a sin problem and it separates us from God. This human nature, this broken human nature, if you will. And the entire Old Testament shows us, I mean, it's a perfect example that, that humans couldn't fix the problem. I mean, they had all the laws, they had all the rules and they try to fulfill it. And if you read it, it's amazing. Over and over and over again, they failed. Over and over and over again, they said no, they rebelled. They did the wrong thing over and, and they had the sacrifices and they had all the stuff very clear laid out, just do this. If you can just do this, you'll be fine with God and they failed every time. And there's some of us that would go, well, I would have done it. No, we wouldn't have. <laughs> there's no way, I mean, for hundreds of years, the Old Testament is very clear, they couldn't do it. They couldn't make it, and so it's pointing to the fact that, hey, there's only one way for us to be okay with God that is perfect, because he's perfect. We want him to be perfect, and if that's not gonna work, then you need to make a sacrifice because there is a sin problem, there is an unclean problem that human beings carry with us wherever we go. Isaiah 64 verse six describes this really well. It says this, all of us, all of us, all of us have become like one who is unclean. There's that clean, unclean idea. All of us, every human has become like one who's unclean. And, and listen to this, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Even the best things we do, even when I'm like, I'm the man and it's amazing and I obeyed that and I obeyed that and I did it right, even our best efforts, our righteous acts are like filthy rags compared to a perfect and holy God. <laughs> Look what he says next, we all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So the ceremonial law and the sacrificial system was this constant reminder that in order to approach a perfect and holy God, we need to either be perfectly holy, which none of us can. I've tried, didn't work. <laughs> none of us can. And we all know that. We all, I mean, we struggle to live up to our own standards, let alone God's. We either have to be perfect if we're gonna approach a perfect God or we need help from outside of ourselves. And that's what the sacrificial system did. The ceremonial law was a very vivid and clear picture of be clean and how clearly we're not clean. I mean, over and over and over again, it talks about that uncleanness. And then the sacrificial system was, was there to show that when we're not clean, what they had to do was they had to sacrifice an animal. When they sinned or when they were unclean, an animal was sacrificed on their behalf and symbolically what happened is their uncleanness, their sin was symbolically transferred to the animal and the animal paid the price for it. The animal felt the separation from community. The animal died. 
for the sin or the uncleanness of the person. And that, in a way, atoned for their sin. This is how they grew up. This is what that system was all about. This is how they related to God, the whole deal. And this is their law. And then when the sacrifice was made and it atoned for their sin, it made it right, it paid for their sin, then that person was made ceremonially clean again. And they could then approach God. They could then enter the temple. So that was the system they lived. But here's the problem. The problem was they knew they couldn't fix it themselves. They, they bumped into the wall too many times, bumped into the wall of their own heart, their own broken human nature. But then they made sacrifices and they were like, okay, good, made a sacrifice, I'm clean. And then the next day they touched the wrong thing again. Or they put the wrong clothes on again. Or they looked at the wrong thing. Or they said the wrong thing. Or they bumped into the wrong thing. And they, they I just need a pork chop. I just, and then it just like got bad. And then they were unclean again. And so that sacrifice that they were just made the day before is now null and void because once again they're unclean. And so that was the frustration. I mean, they were going through animals. It's just crazy. They, they had to do that. And, and so it showed that, yes, I can't be perfect. I can't do this perfectly. But then also, the sacrifices, yes, they help temporarily, but they don't last. And so there was this tension of, am I good enough? Have I done the right thing? Am I doing it? I need to please God. I need to want to approach God. Oh, my gosh. But he's holy. I know I'm not. How do I fix this? And the sacrifices didn't last. Hebrews 10 verse 1 describes this unfortunate reality with these sacrifices. It says this, and the law is only a shadow. The law, the ceremonial law, the this, this system of sacrifices is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, it can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Those sacrifices, yes, cool, they provide a temporary solution, atonement for this, and then I can maybe approach God, but they can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, but they were not. Just kind of a washing and then, oh gosh, I'm susceptible again. They were not cleansed once for all. And would they no longer have felt guilty for their sins? But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. The picture of the sacrificial system, the ceremonial law, was this reminder of sins. And verse 4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the ceremonial law kind of teaches all of us that all of us are unclean. All of us have a sin problem. And as a result, we can't approach God. It creates this natural separation from God. And sacrifices could not solve the problem completely. They could not change our human hearts. They could not cleanse us. And our own efforts fall short. Again, the Old Testament is a picture of that. Over and over and over again, they fail. But my own life is a picture of that that I can't fix me. You can't fix a broken human nature using a broken human nature. That's like trying to fix a broken screwdriver with that broken screwdriver. It doesn't work. You need whole parts. You need whole tools to fix a broken tool. You can't fix our broken human nature with a broken human nature. So the sacrifices weren't gonna work and the self-effort wasn't going to work and this is why <laughs> they kept saying, but one day, a Messiah is coming. One day the Messiah is coming. We can't fix us. I don't know. Is the sacrifice going to work? Oh no, I messed up again. Now I'm not there. 
but the Messiah is coming. And there's this constant messages within the description of the laws of uncleanness and cleanness, the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial system. Within all of that, there is this message that one day the Messiah will come and he will. And this is what it says. It's beautiful. We're gonna see it now. It says that he will not only take the sin that is making us unclean and pay for it. Not only will he atone for our mess, but then he will also die for us and offer us his righteousness so that we can no longer be defined by our own sin and uncleanness, but we can be defined by his perfect cleanness and his holiness and his righteousness so that we will never be separated from God. Again, that he will change our hearts and give us his righteousness. That's what this message of the Messiah is coming is all about. And that's what this little portion of scripture that we're gonna look at now, that Jesus quoted about himself saying, this must be fulfilled in me right before he was crucified. And right before he died, he quotes Isaiah chapter 53. And so I wanna jump to that, Isaiah chapter 53, and I will look at the beauty and the power of what Isaiah said. And again, he said this, 700 years before Jesus. When I think of that and when I read this, knowing what Jesus did, knowing what Christianity teaches, I'm like, how does that even work? God must have had a plan. God must have been doing something. It's incredible. So Isaiah chapter 53, verse three. And Isaiah, just for you Americans, is Isaiah. Um, just so you know where to turn if you're going. Isaiah 53, verse three says this. <clears throat> he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Now, as we read the next verse, it's amazing. He starts to describe what he did. And remember the context. Jesus literally just broken bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Poured out wine, said, this is my blood. And he was literally about to go to the cross within hours. And he says this, oh, verse four, surely he took up our pain. And he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And it's amazing that he says we considered him punished by God because that's exactly what was happening. And you hear punished by God. Why was Jesus punished by God? Well, that's the beauty of the gospel. The message of Jesus is because a legal system, for us to be able to trust a legal system, it must punish wrongdoing, right? We can't trust our legal system. We can't trust our judges and our police. If, if someone just does something wrong, especially if they do it to you and they're like, eh, it's okay, they can just keep going, it's all good. We wouldn't trust them. Wrongdoing must be punished for us to trust the legal system. Otherwise, everything falls apart. For, for, for it to be just, they must punish wrongdoing. And that's the same with God. If God is holy and perfect, and if he is just, he must punish sin. He must punish wrongdoing. Otherwise, we can't trust him. Otherwise, he's not just. Justice must do that. And if God's not just, we can't trust him. And so God must punish sin. But the beauty of the gospel is that he said, I will take the punishment myself. And Jesus came, the Messiah would come and literally bear our pain, our suffering, take our punishment. Look at what he says next. Verse five, he makes it clear. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus just broke the bread, just poured the wine. This is my blood of what I'm about to do. This is my body. He was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And right there, and this is amazing to me, that 700 years before the word Christian was ever even said, 700 years somehow, Isaiah is prophesying that there would be this Messiah who would literally take the transgressions and the sins and the uncleanness of people and die for them. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That the punishment for me was put on him. Isaiah said that 700 years before it happened. He would pay the price for us. It goes on, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. There's the, the, the result of what Jesus did. It would bring us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. The reality is that once a, a fine is paid, you know, when you have a fine, there's a debt, there's tension, there's no peace. But when the fine is paid, it's done. It's history, it's gone. When, when a penalty has been paid, when a sentence has been lived out and it's done, then a judge has no more qualms with you. A judge is fine, you can move on. There is peace, there is freedom. And he says the punishment that brought us peace was on him. The fine has been paid, the punishment has been dealt with. All of my uncleanness, all of my sin, all of your uncleanness, all of your sin was put on him to give us peace with ourselves, with those around us, with God. And by his wounds, we are healed that somehow there's a healing that takes place inside of us, that he heals us. Verse six, we all, all of us, Isaiah says, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. That has separated us from God. And the Lord has laid on him, as Isaiah talks about this Messiah that was to come, that Jesus claimed saying, this is me. The Lord has put on him the iniquity of us all. How clear is this in the Old Testament? Verse seven, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, referencing this sacrificial system that a lamb needed to die, an animal needed to die. He said, he was that lamb led to the slaughter. And a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He did it willingly. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, he took on our sin, he took on our iniquities, he was pierced, he was crushed, and he died. He was cut off from the land of the living. And again, <laughs> this was written 700 years before. And then it describes in such clear terms the message of the Christian gospel. He was, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. It doesn't make sense. And yet it does because God was doing something for the transgressions, yours and mine. He was punished. And then it says something so detailed, like it's all this theological idea of sin and uncleanness and transgression, and then it gets really practical. Look at what he says in verse nine. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And then you realize, if you know the story of Jesus, again, 700 years before, it says this. And then Jesus, after he was dead on the cross, something happened that if he was just human, he could not control at all. But Isaiah saw and Isaiah prophesied that he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Remember, he was crucified between two criminals, wicked people, and he died with them. 
And with the rich in his death, Matthew 27 verse 57 tells us how that was fulfilled. It says this, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea. Isaiah said he was with the rich in his death, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus, going to Pilate, the man who crucified Jesus. He asked Jesus, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. So jo Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. I don't know, but how 700 years before, Isaiah said, verse nine, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich man, with the rich in his death. And it happened. It happened. It's crazy. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He did not deserve it. He was clean. He did not need to be separated. He was perfect. He was sinless, holy. And yet, look at verse 10. Yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer so that we didn't have to, to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, and I know we're right in the middle of this verse, but I wanna pause here because that, that line, makes his life an offering for sin, sounds like it should have been written after Jesus did what he did. Sounds like it should have been written by someone describing Christianity, not someone in the middle of the Hebrew history writing about something that might happen in the future. Because, I mean, that describes the Christian gospel so beautifully. 1 John 2 verse 2 almost says the same words. He says, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's who he is. Isaiah said it like this, though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. And right there, referencing the, the sacrificial system and this idea that the gospel would say that Jesus would literally be an offering for our sin, though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, yet look what he says, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Now, how does that work? I mean, he's gonna be an offering for sin, he's gonna be cut off from the land of the living, and yet he will prolong his days. That doesn't make sense. And, and the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. What does that even mean? I mean, he's dying and yet prolong his days. He will see what's happening. Verse 11 describes it. Isaiah says it as well. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. In other words, Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, <laughs> he said, he's gonna die He's gonna take on all our sin. I mean, how clear is this? He's gonna take on our sin, our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. He will be pierced for our transgressions. He will take it all on him. He's, the, he's holy. He's never done anything wrong. He doesn't deserve it. He will take it all on. He's gonna die, and then he's gonna rise again. He will see the light of life. It's just crazy to see how that works and he will be satisfied, uh, see the light of life and be satisfied. It's amazing. And then, and then Isaiah goes further than that. So he's describing everything that Jesus is gonna do. Take on our sin, come take on our sin, die for us, rise again. But then he goes further and he talks about this Christian doctrine of justification. And what that simply means is that not only did Jesus die to forgive our sins, okay, you're forgiven, but Jesus also died, and when he rose again, he offers us his righteousness. In other words, he forgives the sin, but he gives us his cleanness. He gives us his righteousness. Look at how Isaiah says it. He says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. 
A way to remember what justify means is that I'm made just as if I'd never sinned. And that's what he's saying. He will take our sin. He'll be crushed. He will suffer for my sin. And he will die. He will rise again. And then he will offer us his righteousness. Justify us. Make us just as if I'd never sinned. And he will bear their iniquities. Right there is the message of Christianity that we've all sinned. All of us. All of us have the sin problem. None of us measure up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. And that separates us from God. But the Messiah will come. Take it all on himself. Die. Rise again and offer us holiness, justification. He will clean us so that we never have to worry about whether we're allowed to approach God. And that's why trusting Jesus is so important. That's why this message of Christianity is not just a message of love. If I just love my neighbor, I'm a good Christian. If it's just love, love will change the world. No, 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 no. Love's a wonderful thing. And yes, love's a part of it. But the, the importance of Christianity is this acknowledgement that I have a sin problem, that I have an unclean problem, and it separates me from God. That's why trusting Jesus is so important because He is the one who died, who took your sin, my sin, died, paid the price completely for it, and offers us righteousness. And when we trust Him, when we accept what he's done, then there's this incredible exchange, my sin, that separates me from God for his righteousness. That I'm no longer defined by my mess, by my uncleanness, my inability to clean myself. But I'm defined by his righteousness. When I trust him, he will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. My gosh, that's awesome because he bears my iniquities. Past, present, and future. And I'm not defined by my past, present, and future mess and sin and inability and uncleanness. I'm defined by his cleanness, his holiness, his perfection. If we accept what he's done. Verse 12 says this, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. And this is where we bump into the part that Jesus quoted, referencing all of it. But he says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. The reason that was needed was because he needed to take on the transgressions, become a transgressor for us becomes sin for us so that we could become his righteousness. And he bore the sins of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. <laughs> I don't understand. It's amazing, 700 years before, that clear, clear message of Christianity, of the gospel that Jesus came to provide. It's incredible to me that he came to take our sin, to suffer for us and to die, to rise again and to justify us. How is that message written 700 years before Christianity was ever mentioned unless, <laughs> unless God was planning it? It's incredible to me that Jesus came to take us and take our uncleanness and to make us clean so that we can have access to God and can approach God. Hebrews 10 verse 10 describes it very simply. It says this, and this is beautiful. We have been made holy. If we trust what he's done, accept what he's done, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And Christmas reminds us of that. Christmas reminds us that the help we needed to fix the mess in our own hearts, to fix the problem of separation between us and God, the help we needed showed up. <laughs> it came. 
And a baby was born in order to die for you and for me. And just like the entire Old Testament showed that we're unable to fix that problem of sin and separation between us and God, no matter how hard we try, we know we don't even meet our own standards. We know that, I know that we all know that, let alone God's perfect holy standards. We can't fix the separation, but the help that was needed showed up that we, because of our uncleanness, could not approach God, but he approached us. And he came to be that lamb of God that pictures all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, sacrifices that did not work ultimately, just temporarily, but he came to be the ultimate sacrifice once for all. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, when he started his ministry, this is what he said to him. Verse 29, this is what he said about him. John John 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Christmas makes possible. When we could not approach God because the reality is we understand we're unclean and if God really is God, we understand he's not. He's holy, he's perfect, and that creates the separation. And we were powerless to do anything about it. Romans 5 or 6 says it beautifully as well. He says, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, We could not fix this. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, maybe someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Christmas reminds us, (laughs) it reminds us that we couldn't fix our problems. We couldn't fix our unclean hearts and we couldn't fix and do what was necessary to approach God, but that Jesus came to take that sin, to take that that, that iniquity, that uncleanness, take it on himself, suffer and die, and then offer us his righteousness and clean our hearts so we can be defined by his righteousness, not our sin. His cross becomes our freedom. His suffering becomes our healing. And that's the message of Christianity. That's that's the message of the Old Testament as it talks about our uncleanness and that ceremonial reality of the ceremonial laws and the Messiah that's coming that's needed. And then Christmas shows up and said, you could not approach me, but I have approached you. That's the message of Christmas, that a son was born in order to take our sins, to pay the price, to die, to give us forgiveness, but more than that, to justify us and give us his righteousness. And when we trust him, this exchange happens, my uncleanness for his cleanness, my sin for his righteousness, so that never again do I have to be separated from God. That's why Christmas happened to show that God approached us. It's incredible. And it was written 700 years before Christmas ever started. Now, I don't know where you land or where you are with these ideas of uncleanness and sin and, and God and holiness and separation. I don't know. That's a bunch of ideas. I don't know where you land with that. Maybe this is brand new to you. Maybe this is like, I don't know. Maybe you've done this forever. But we wanted to give you a moment, just because this is so beautiful, and Isaiah said this, we just wanted to give you a moment to think about this, to reflect on this. 
And so we're going to have the band come out and play a song called Son of Suffering that expresses some of these ideas that Isaiah talked about and, and that, that Christmas talks about, that Christianity talks about. And in this time, wherever you're at, if you just need a moment to close your eyes and remember that this is the reality of what Jesus did, just to take a, t a moment to say, I don't have to be defined by my own uncleanness today or tomorrow because I don't live by sacrifices that need to be made over and over again. I live on one sacrifice and I'm defined by that. Or maybe you're brand new to this and this is a moment where you're discovering it and you just wanna tell him, wow, I, I know I'm unclean, but you did that for me? Okay, I want that. Just take a moment to do that during the song. Remember, Accept, remember the importance of this in some way. I'm gonna pray for us and the band's gonna come out and we're going to think about this beauty of what Isaiah said. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much for the reality of this. Thank you so much that, that you don't let our uncleanness keep us separated from you forever that you have done everything needed to give us the help outside to come and help fix this broken human nature that we live with and give us a way to, to approach you. Thank you that even though we couldn't approach you, you approached us. And Jesus, thank you for taking my sin and dying for me, but not just leaving it there, giving me your righteousness as well so that I could be defined, not by my mess, but by your holiness. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.
we could be defined by that son of suffering, that he could, we could be defined literally today, tomorrow, the past, whatever it is that, that hounds us, that we can be defined by that son of suffering who literally was crushed for our iniquities, was pierced for our transgressions, that it all landed on him, and he did it willingly for you and for me, took it all, died, rose again, and then offers you his righteousness. And he declares when you trust him and say thank you, when you say yes, I see that in me and I trust you, he says you are clean. 
you are clean. He reached out to us. He approached us so that we could approach him. It's incredible. And our hope this Christmas, my hope this Christmas is that we can be defined by his righteousness and everything and allow he, him, him, what he does to cleanse our hearts. It's incredible. That's our hope. Thanks so much for being a part of the series. Thanks so much for being here at Rock Point. We're so grateful. Just a reminder, we do not have a Sunday service the next two weeks, so please don't come. You'll be alone. Um, but do come this Wednesday. We've got our Christmas service at 7 p.m. Wednesday the 22nd. We're looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, so grateful. Thank you, and Merry Christmas. We'll see you on Wednesday. <laughs>